Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Muni Lowdown, the weekly podcast produced by DebtWire Municipals. My name is Young Lim. I am the desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Joining t- me today are three talented reporters, and I, we're going to go right to uh, Maria Monte and, and find out what she's going to be discussing this week. Uh PG&E's bankruptcy has sparked new interest in municipalizing investor-owned utilities, and so I'll be going over what exactly that means for municipalities and the company itself. All right, and then moving on to sunny Florida, Simone Barabo, what's on your docket today? Today I'm talking about not just a rare Chapter 9, but a bankruptcy that involves Florida dirt bonds, jail developers, and misspent funds. All right, and finally from the Windy City... Kayleen Devitt, what's on your agenda today? Good morning. Well, today there's been lots going on in Illinois, um, and I'll be talking about the deputy governor's proposal about um, the state's pension amortization schedule, as well as um, a credit called MetPeer that a lot of our listeners might be aware of, as well as a ruling out of Missouri with Platte County's appropriation pledge. All right, thanks. Let's get started. Miramonte, here in New York. Uh, You wrote a story this week about San Francisco's desire to municipalize their energy utility. What exactly is municipalization? Municipalization is the process of taking an investor-owned utility and making it a publicly-owned utility. Probably the best-known example of this is the Long Island Power Company, which was formed after the Long Island Lighting Company, an investor-owned utility, experienced financial distress after a failed investment in a nuclear power plant. San Francisco's energy utility is Pacific Gas and Electric, and they've wanted to break up with PG&E for quite some time. In the past, these efforts have mostly treaded water, but PG&E's bankruptcy provides a new opportunity for them to pursue municipalization. Bankruptcy court provides an opportunity for their pitch for acquisition to be heard, and typically investor-owned utilities aren't interested in selling. There are several examples of that. Right now, uh, the South San Joaquin Irrigation District has been trying to break off from PG&E for nearly 15 years, and they've been caught up in litigation as PG&E simply doesn't want to sell. The same is true in Boulder, Colorado, although the IOU there is Excel Energy, and that's been going on for a decade for the same reason the IOU is putting up a fight. They are years away from closing this transaction if they do at all. So why does San Francisco want to municipalize? Effectively, they say they can do a better job, and they say they can do it at a lower cost. And publicly-owned utilities do have access to the municipal bond market, which means it's cheaper for them to borrow money than an investor-owned utility, and they don't have to pay shareholder dividends. San Francisco also already provides power to about 80% of their service area, operating as a community choice aggregator, or CCA. As a CCA, they generate the power themselves, but use PG&E's distribution system to transmit the energy. The remaining customers are served by PG&E directly, but all of them receive bills from PG&E. The San Francisco Public Utilities Commission says that it can deliver power not only more cost effect, more not only more cost effectively than PG&E, but they can also do it greener, which is in line with the city's clean power goals. And what's more, most people hate PG&E, and anything that can get ratepayers away from PG&E is broadly appealing. And the idea specifically of putting the people in charge of the energy utility is also especially appealing. So how does a municipality go about purchasing an investor-owned utility? 
First, they have to determine if it's feasible. In San Francisco's case, they've already completed that part, and they have determined that, yes, indeed, they want to move forward. And then they begin negotiations and have to determine a valuation and then form an offer. And, uh, and normally, as I said, the IOU could dismiss any offer outright. But the opportunity for San Francisco right now is that PG&E is in bankruptcy, and that provides a formal platform for their offer to be heard. It's incredibly costly in or outside of bankruptcy court. It involves litigation. The municipality needs to hire lawyers, bankers, financial advisors, engineers, and that's even before the cost of the acquisition. After an acquisition, which would be debt-financed, they'll need to determine what maintenance is necessary, and they'll need to hire the right people to improve, operate, and maintain the system. So what hurdles do they face from there? Look at it this way. What's the upside for PG&E? How do they operate losing such a large portion of their service area? Even if San Francisco breaks off, the distribution system isn't ring-fenced. It would create an island inside of the utility service area, and so the city and PG&E would still need to coordinate in that respect. But losing San Francisco, they lose an affluent and growing service area, and one that's at low risk for wildfire damage. That's 400,000 customers, or 7% of the company's customer base. It's a huge loss and something very difficult to absorb. But say everyone's on board, management, creditors, shareholders, all of the interested parties in the bankruptcy case, then the state regulator must also give the go-ahead. And if there are negative consequences for other PG&E customers throughout the state, for example, if PG&E has to raise rates, that would be a negative consequence for other PG&E ratepayers. And regulators may be cautious to greenlight anything that would bring about that outcome. So what's next? San Francisco has been working to prepare their valuation, their offer. They've retained Jeffries to do so and are very serious about this pursuit. They haven't provided any timeline, but the parties in the bankruptcy court, including Governor Gavin Newsom, are advocating to expedite the process, especially as another wildfire season starts to gear up. And, of course, the liabilities associated with those wildfires are the reason PG&E is in bankruptcy in the first place. Right now, we'll just have to stay tuned. We'll definitely stay tuned. Thank you, Maria. Moving on to Simone. I got a question for you, Simone. Weren't you just talking about a municipal bankruptcy filing last week? Aren't they normally rarer than this? Yes. So I was talking about a tiny Arkansas town last week, and this week I'm talking about a Florida community development district known as a CDD. There are only a handful of Chapter 9s a year, and it's really rare to get them this close together. The last time was at the beginning of 2017. And if you're looking for superlatives, this one is really unusual. It's the first time a Florida CDD has filed for Chapter 9 bankruptcy. So what happened with this bankruptcy? So if you were going to write a Florida man version of municipal bankruptcies, this would be it. This was already a developed community in 2006 when the district called Clearwater KCDD sold almost $34 million in bonds to finance all kinds of amenities. This is a place up near Tampa in Clearwater, which is probably most famous for having a heavy Scientology presence, but that's neither here nor there for this story. <laughs> anyway, instead of building the amenities, which included a lagoon and a canal, boat slips, lighted waterfront promenade, and waterside entertainment, the developer absconded with the money. He is now in federal prison. But this is like 
this is kind of like one of those stories where the sports team that uses the stadium leaves and people are still paying off the stadium, except it's as if the stadium was never built. And homeowners are still paying off the bonds for amenities they never got. So there have been state court lawsuits about this, but it's now in bankruptcy court. And when I spoke with the lawyer, he basically said, look, we're trying to get bondholders to hand over information and sit down and work this out with us. Hence the bankruptcy filing. But Florida intrigue aside, this is unusual. It's, it's unprecedented. But in what way? Aren't CDDs always defaulting? Yes, they are. After the housing market collapsed, they were responsible for a gigantic portion of municipal bond defaults. They're often unrated. So in the early 2000s, developers would get the CDDs to issue these loans. CDD debt is known as dirt bonds because they're used to develop vacant lots of land out by the Everglades or wherever in Florida. And developers, until homeowners move in, control the boards of the community development districts, which are ostensibly governmental bodies. So when the housing market collapsed, A developer would realize he had no way to sell the homes that were supposed to be built on the property. Districts would be in different stages. Sometimes the homes would be built and they couldn't sell them. Sometimes they wouldn't have been built at all. It just depended. But in any case, the developer would file for a corporate bankruptcy protection, maybe two dozen filed. Sometimes the bondholders would support this, sometimes they wouldn't, and then they'd have whatever rights they had. The district controlled by the developer would be the direct creditor, and bondholders were secondary creditors. But this is the first time a CDD has filed for Chapter 9 in Florida. So this is the district itself, not the developer. Chapter 9 in Florida is allowed. In some states, it's not. But it's exceedingly rare. I looked up the federal court docket and could only find two other Florida municipalities that had ever filed for Chapter 9. And this was back in the 1980s and 90s. And, you know, we'll have to see if the sticks. You need the governor's approval in Florida to file for Chapter 9. As yet, they don't have it, so it might be complicated. So is this the same for CDDs across the nation, or is this just a Florida thing? So not everywhere allows CDDs, and the defaults were concentrated in Florida after the housing bust, in part because other places that have dirt bonds that are known, for instance, as Melarus out in California and MUDs, short for Municipal Utility Districts in Texas, put in place stricter laws after their own massive wave of defaults in the 1980s and 1990s. The Melarus, for instance, have independent boards which assess which developments are likely to succeed before bonds are issued. In Florida, it's more of just a question of, can you get someone to underwrite it? And you know the old saying about, I have some land in Florida that I want to sell you. You can always get it sold under what underwriting standards definitely tightened up after the housing market bust, but eventually I'm sure we'll loosen again. And then you have the sanitary improvement districts in Nebraska, Samal, and those have seen massive defaults, right? Right, exactly. And unlike in Florida, those have been Chapter 9s. Since 2010, Nebraska has been home to more Chapter 9 bankruptcies, restructuring some of all the government entities than any other state, 17 out of a total of about 75. The process of Chapter 9 filings for SIDS, SIDs, has become so streamlined that the bankruptcy plan of adjustment is often filed along with the petition for bankruptcy. 
the amount of debt involved in Nebraska bankruptcies is a lot smaller than in Florida CDD defaults. It's in the about maybe a hundred million dollar range, rather than in the low billions when you count all Florida defaults, whether or not the developer filed for bankruptcy. All right. Well, thank you, Simone. So, Kaylin, starting in Illinois, tell us about what De- Illinois Deputy Governor Dan Hines said this week. Um, Well, thanks, Young. So Hines and Governor J.B. Pritzker have been on a victory lap this week after the State General Assembly finished up a busy session last week with a new fiscal 20 operating budget, a $45 billion capital budget, graduated income tax referendum, and legal cannabis and a major gaming expansion. So Dan Hines, he's the governor's point person on pensions and the budget. He spoke Wednesday at the Bomb Buyers Annual Midwest Conference, which was held in downtown Chicago. Um, Before the speech, he talked with me and a few other financial reporters. And one of the most interesting things he talked to us about and, and also talked a little bit about during his speech was that the state doesn't seem to be taking off the table a possible pushing out of its pension amortization schedule. This is a plan that Pritzker proposed in February through Heinz, and it met with lots of criticism. It was one, it was one piece of a five-point pension overhaul plan that included, like, selling assets and uh, possibly selling assets and transferring to the pension funds and um, pushing out the amortization schedule, among other things. Um, the governor later dropped the plan in May when April, when revenues came in higher than expected in April, the so-called April supo- surprise. The state got $1.5 billion more than it thought it was going to. Pritzker said that plan allowed him to, stop, to drop the plan to push out the amortization schedule by seven years and make the full fiscal um, 20 payment. So, you know, and the investors sort of breathed a sigh of relief. Rating agencies said that, the, you know, the state kind of dodged a bullet. But Heinz um, said last week or said earlier this week that he recognized the angst that that plan had caused investors and the rating agencies, but he still sort of said it's on the table and it's something the state needs to look at. He, you know, he said, and Pritzker said this before, that the current ramp that the state is on, the current schedule is unsustainable. Um, so Heinz emphasized that it's going to be something that they're going to look at in conjunction with the other pension proposals, not on its own, and it's not something that's imminent. But still, it was interesting that it sounds like, um, even though he kind of walked a fine line, it sounds like it's still on the table. I see. So uh, elsewhere in this, within the state of Illinois, and focusing on Chicago, tell us about the latest on MetPeer. Well, MetPeer has kind of been in the news lately. This is, um, for those who don't know, it's a government entity. It operates Chicago's convention center, which is the largest in the country, and, and it associated entities like hotels and parking garages, as well as a stadium and a big tourist destination in Chicago that's called Navy Pier. So MetPeer was in the news last week because lawmakers, as they were trying to get everything else done with the budgets and um, um, and other issues, they also considered boosting MetPeer's borrowing authority for a $600 million expansion, a proposal that would have required MetPeer, that would have expanded this kind of area in which MetPeer collects a 1% restaurant and bar tax um, into a much larger area to collect, you know, an estimated maybe $10 million more a year. I think they collect now about 50 out of that tax. So the proposal sparked immediate controversy across the state, and it was dropped when um, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot came out against it. But meanwhile, we were writing about the credit last week because they were also quietly closing a private placement of a brand-new 
um, of a brand new kind of bond indenture. The private placement was for 37 million, and it was with Morgan Stanley, and it was the first of probably two deals that that sounds like they're going to, you know, they told us they're probably going to come back to market later this year with the second tranche. Um, the security is net op- is Metpeer's net operating revenue, not including the hotels. That's the first time they've tapped that credit for long term for long term debt. Um, and it allows them to avoid either going to the state legislature and deal with the politics of asking for more borrowing permission under their current um, bond indenture, which is the so-called expansion bonds. They got about four billion of those outstanding, and it also allows them to go to the um, to avoid going to the rating agencies. Some of our listeners might remember that Metpeer a few years ago was um, roundly downgraded and lost its AAA rating after the state failed to make a monthly set-aside payment for some of the bonds during the state's separate um, budget impasse. So the private placement security does not cross with the bondholder security, two totally different revenue streams. They emphasize that, but it's still sort of an interesting story for people keeping their eye on that credit. All right. Now, finally, moving on to the state of Missouri, what's the latest happening in Platte County? Well, the big news out of Platte County, not that there's frequently big news coming out of Platte County, but last week um, a, uh, a state circuit court judge ruled last Friday that the county was legally um, allowed to drop its appropriation pledge. This county, uh, the three-member county commission board late, had decided starting in September and then kind of going throughout late last year that, they, that it didn't want to be responsible for making backup payments on bonds that were issued in 2007 for a mall in Kansas City that's called Zona Rosa. Back then, the county had attached, back in 27, when the bonds were issued through the Industrial Development Authority, the county had agreed to attach its appropriation pledge to the debt. But the mall was always kind of troubled and wasn't generating the the, um, money expected for debt service. And so the county um, last year decided it didn't want to honor it. The judge's ruling, you know, surprised basically no one in the muni market because we all know that an appropriation pledge is just an appropriation pledge or, you know, also called a moral obligation pledge. And the county is not legally required to make the payments. If You know, kind of a cursory review of bond documents and the financing agreement shows that. But it's still expected to reverberate through the market. It's kind of one more nail in the coffin of appropriation pledge, the moral obligation sort of. Um, deterioration of different credits that were once thought to be more secure than they are now. We've seen it with the GL pledge in Detroit. Now we're seeing it with special revenues because um, of the ruling coming out of Puerto Rico. So this is just sort of, you know, yet another um, less secure um, kind of pledge than bondholders might have thought about it before. On the appropriation pledge side, there was also a story earlier this year from February that Maria wrote about in which a judge affirmed um, a move by Buena Vista, Virginia, to drop its appropriation pledge backing some bonds issued for a city-owned golf course. Thank you, Caitlin. Thank you, Simone. And thank you, Maria. And thank you to our producer, Ando Constantino. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in each week. Uh, make sure to log into debtwire.com for the latest on distressed municipal debt. Thank you all, and have a good day. <laughs>